Well, having spent five weeks studying the doctrines of grace, going through the acronym TULIP, tonight we come to responding to objections to the doctrines of grace. And as we get into this subject, I want to remind you of three things on the front end. I want to basically call your mind to remember three things, call you to remember three things. And the first one is, remember what we have covered. Remember what we have covered. I think, this is my opinion, too often when Christians confront objections to the doctrines of grace, they can forget not only the mountain of Bible verses, but the mountain range of Bible verses that we have already covered. Think of all the verses that have supported the doctrine of total, total depravity. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Romans 3, ones that we've seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, etc., etc. And that's just total depravity. You can go on and start thinking of the other doctrines that we've studied. And I think one of the reasons why Christians can forget all of the verses that support the greatness of God's sovereign grace in our salvation is because oftentimes the objections to the doctrines of grace include Bible verses that we are most familiar with. So it's as though when you hear an objection to the doctrine of grace, it's usually coming, oftentimes, not all the time, from a verse that you are so familiar with, and as soon as you hear that Bible verse, it's as though commonly held sets of creedal-like assumptions that are attached to that verse come to mind. Somebody says John 3.16, and you just go back to some of your creedal-like assumptions as to what that verse means, and then you can forget the mountain range of Bible verses that you have studied in the past five weeks. Well, we're going to study John 3.16 tonight. It is a precious, precious text of Scripture, and we're going to see what it teaches within its context and what it is saying. Um, I also want you to remember to how, how to respond not only what statements to respond with, but to remember how you are to respond if people have objections to the doctrines of grace. You know, you look at verses like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, and you see that it's important not only to respond with right doctrine, but to respond rightly with gentleness and respect. At the end of the day, if you're talking with another brother and sister who's in Christ, and they have a wrong doctrine, a wrong view of the doctrines of grace, what you want to do is you want to help them understand. You're not trying to win an argument per se. You're trying to help a dear, beloved brother or sister better understand what the Bible teaches about the greatness of the grace that has saved us. So you always want to show gentleness. You always want to show respect. And I want you to remember, so I want you to remember, A, what we've already covered, B, how to respond, not only what statements to respond with, and then I want you to remember some of the verses tonight, all of them if you can, the scriptural texts that are so often misused and or misapplied by those who would reject the doctrines of grace. We're, gonna, we're going to jump right into it. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 to begin. That verse reads as follows, Jesus speaking, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So we're going to be walking through New Testament verses. We're going to go in canonical order, and we're starting with the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the opposing argument when somebody quotes, or as you'll see, misquotes, Matthew 23, 37 usually goes like this. This verse clearly... And you'll notice oftentimes when people object to the doctrines of grace, usually the word clearly is involved. This verse clearly, clearly teaches that Jesus wanted to gather individuals to himself, but could not because the individuals he wanted to gather to himself were not willing. That's usually the argument when people are quoting or misquoting Matthew 23, 37. So the first problem with this objection would be this. The argument is usually based upon a misquoting of the verse. Usually, and, and many of you probably have done this. I know throughout my Christian life I have done this. Because you've heard it quoted or misquoted so many times, you've probably said something like this, or at least you've heard something like this said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, 
but you were not willing. See, the way it's misquoted, it's, it's sounding as though Jesus wanted to gather the people. But the reason why he couldn't gather the people is because the same people that he wanted to gather were not willing to be gathered. So the argument is there is something even greater than God's sovereign grace, and that's man's free will. Even Jesus, the Son of God, couldn't overcome the free will of the people that he wanted to gather to himself. Now the problem is, that whole argumentation that you just heard me make to you is based upon a misquotation of the verse. The verse actually reads, not, I wanted to gather you, but you were not willing. It reads, I wanted to gather your children, but you were not willing. So let's walk through the verse. Who is Jesus speaking to? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So he's directing his words to that city that represented opposition against him, and I would argue particularly to the Jewish religious leadership whose seat of leadership was in Jerusalem. You just look in Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is that passage, that chapter, that has a series of woes and denunciations to the religious leaders. You go through that chapter over and over again, you'll see Jesus say, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, it's throughout the whole chapter leading right into verse 37. Jesus is issuing woes to the religious leadership. So we would do well to first be reminded of who he is speaking to. Jerusalem, that city that had for so long in its hist history resisted the prophets that were sent to that city. But most immediately, that city is represented by the religious leadership whose seat of leadership was in Jerusalem. Now, to provide an example of what Jesus is saying, because he's saying, I wanted to gather your children, but you are not willing. Why is he using that kind of language? Because the scribes and Pharisees, they sat in a position of leadership. It's as though they, were, they had a father-like role, if you will, to the children, those students that were under their tutelage. But they, the Pharisees and religious leaders, didn't want their followers to follow Jesus. You see that in Matthew 23, and you see that repeatedly in the Gospels. They did what they could to keep their children, their students, from getting to Jesus. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 23, if you were to go back to verse 17, you'd see these words. Jesus says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. He's speaking about that kind of behavior. You're stopping people. Ultimately, you won't win. We'll talk about that in a moment, because Jesus made it clear that all that the Father gave to him would come to him. But they were doing everything that they could to stop the Jewish people from going to Jesus. Some for instances of that, if you needed to look at um, some more in for instances, you go to John chapter 9. Remember the man who was born blind and Jesus healed him and his parents didn't even want to answer a question that the religious leadership was asking because they knew if they answered that question in a wrong way, an unapproved way by the religious leadership, by the Pharisees, they knew that the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he, Jesus, was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue John chapter 9, verse 22. Another, for instance, of that comes in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, verse 42, we're told, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. You can look at other examples in Matthew chapter 12. Remember Jesus doing a miracle, casting out a demon. And then what did the religious leadership say? He casts out demons by Beelzebub. They wanted to do anything that they could to misrepresent Jesus, to malign Jesus, so that people would not go to Jesus. So what I want you to see is that this verse, so often used as an argument against the doctrines of grace, has nothing to do about Jesus wanting to, nothing to do with Jesus wanting to save individuals, but not being able to save them because there's one thing greater than the sovereignty of God, and that's man's free will. 
It's not even about that. It's not about that at all. It's in the context of scathing denunciations to the Pharisees, which concludes with Jesus telling them, behold, your house is left to you desolate. It's a judgment passage. It's not about Jesus not being able to reveal himself or to gather people to himself. As a matter of fact, earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus made it abundantly clear that the only ones who come to salvation, the only ones who come to knowing the Father, are those to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. So this verse speaks to the guilt of the religious leadership. You're doing everything you can to try to keep the people of Israel from coming to the true light. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And part of the proximate means of that was the religious leadership doing everything that they could, but they wouldn't ultimately be successful. Their house would be left to them desolate, Matthew 23, verse 38. And Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Matthew, John chapter 6, verse 37. So there's a verse that's used to oppose the doctrines of grace, and it doesn't. It doesn't at all. Let's go to probably the best known, most well-known Bible verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. John chapter 3, verse 16. I'll read it to you, but most of you probably have it committed already to memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever, or to use language from the King James, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now the opposing argument, opposing to the doctrines of grace, would go something like this. Here in John 3.16, you could clearly see that God gave his son for every person who has ever lived. For God so loved the world. And in light of that phrase, whoever or whosoever believes in him, you can see that all people have the moral ability in some way or another to make the choice of whether or not they will believe in Jesus. So that's usually how some people are arguing John 3.16 to try to refute the doctrines of grace. Now again, one of the things I want you to see is that as we go through these scriptures, you shouldn't say like, Okay, there are doctrines of grace verses, and then there are verses that people use for opposition to the doctrines of grace. There, there, are, there, there is that dichotomy, but ultimately at the end of the day, as a son or daughter of God, you love all Scripture. You love John 3.16. And John 3.16, I would argue, does not pose a difficulty for the beauty of the doctrines of grace. Let's walk through it, and we'll see what it actually teaches. So problems with this objection. First thing I would say is that the King James rendering that includes the words whosoever, that reading, right, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, has been improperly understood and misapplied. So a lot of times, you've probably heard this at some point in your Christian walk, people will say whosoever, whosoever, and maybe they'll kind of, you know, repeat that over and over again as to say that implies that anyone can, to some degree or another, they can be the ultimate determining factor in whether or not they come to Jesus. Whosoever means anybody can. Problem with that is the verse doesn't literally read like that, um, nor does it at all imply that. Very literally, when you get to that part of the text where we read, whosoever believeth in him or whoever believes in him, it literally reads, so that everyone believing in him should not perish. So God sent his son. He so loved the world that he sent his son that everyone believing in him should not perish. That's, an, that's a rendering from the Berean literal Bible. It catches the exact connotations of the Greek text. So the idea of kind of honing in on the whosoever language, and that implies some sort of moral ability, it's just not there in the text. Who are the whosoevers? It's just identifying a specific group of people. That's who the whosoevers are. It's literally everyone believing in him. There's no connotation of moral ability from the whosoever. It's just telling you who the people are. God sent his only begotten son into the world so that everyone believing in him should not perish. So quick point at this point would be, 
pressing the word whosoever or whoever to mean that salvation ultimately rests on the choice of man and not the grace of God is completely unfounded. It's just not here. It's not here at all. And actually, if you look at it, John 3.16 actually argues for particular redemption. Seeing as the Father sent His Son into the world so that specifically all believing ones will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the purpose. Why did God send His Son into the world? God so loved the world or loved the world in this way that He sent His only begotten Son so that all believing ones would not perish but have everlasting life. So they, uh, the sending of the Son had a particular aim. Was it to save everyone? Not according to John 3.16. It was to save a particular people. How are they identified in John 3.16? They're identified as believing ones. And if you were to say, does John tell us anything more about who these believing ones are or how they became believing ones? He does. Remember John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13? We're told that those who receive the Son, everyone who received the Son, who believed in Him, were born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It wasn't through their genealogical connection to Abraham. It wasn't by their own will. It was by the sovereign grace of God. Those who received Christ, believing on His name, that's how they became those who believed on His name. Sovereign grace, not according to the will of flesh or the will of man. That's John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. What about John chapter 3? And the opening verses of John chapter 3. Those who are born again are those who see the kingdom of God. How does one get born again? Well, the wind blows where it wishes, and so is everyone who is born of the Holy Spirit. Everyone is born of above, and so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's by the sovereign will of the Spirit. There's more texts. John 6.37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. That's how the believing ones came to be believing ones. It's right there within the context of John's gospel. Third, I would say this. Uh, the word world in John chapter 3, verse 16, is connected to specifically those God intended to save. Not only in that verse, and it's clear in that verse, God sent His Son into the world. He so loved the world that He sent His Son into the world to save believing ones. But then if you look at the very next verse, the very next verse says in John three seventeen, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John 3.17 is a purpose statement. It's showing you why the Father sent the Son into the world. To save the world. Now if you take the view that the world here refers to all kinds of fallen people, not just Jews, but people from every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue, then this verse shows the success of God's redemptive plan. He sent His Son into the world to save believing ones. He's the one who made them believing ones. We see that earlier in John's Gospel and later in John's Gospel. And He sent His Son into the world to save the world. Not every single person. Otherwise, you could argue that the plan failed because there's one thing stronger than God's omnipotent, almighty sovereignty, and that's man's free will. But the purpose statement is best understood as seeing the word world as referring to all kinds of people. All kinds of people. All kinds of fallen people. Jews and Gentiles alike. Let's go on to Romans uh, 8.29. We covered this in our um, study of unconditional election, but I wanted to revisit it because this is often um, cited as a verse to argue against the doctrines of grace, and I want us just, just to run through it rather quickly. In Romans 8.29, we read, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So this is where you see... That P word, predestined. And so people will look at this verse and they will say, look, those whom God foreknew, he predestined. This is the argument. The objection goes like this. See, God foreknew that people would choose him, and that's why he chose them. Problems with that objection is that's not what the verse says. 
It does not say that. It does not say that whom he foreknew would exercise their free will and choose him. It doesn't say that. The objects, the grammatical object of the verb foreknew here is whom. That's the direct object of the verb. So if you say, what did God foreknow? Well, you say, he foreknew individuals. It's individuals in this context that he foreknew. Paul didn't say that God foreknew the faith of these individuals. Rather, he said God foreknew them. And remember, biblically, that's the kind of language that connotes relationship. Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God told Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. God's not saying, like, I know there's a whole bunch of other people on the planet, but I don't know who they are. You're the only people I actually know. Rather, he's saying to them, you only have I known. I've entered into a covenant relationship with you, Israel. It connotes relationship. Before God formed Jeremiah in the womb, he knew him. God set him apart and ordained him to be a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. That connotes a kind of relational foreknowledge as well as foreordination. Remember, some of the scariest words in the Bible are found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, where there will be those who on that day say, Lord, Lord, and they would hear from the Lord Jesus, I never knew you, because knowing connotes relationship. All that to say, God's foreknowing of an individual connotes lovingly choosing them, setting his affection upon them, and foreordaining them unto salvation. Now, there's additional points. I won't spend long here, but there's additional points to not see Romans 8.29 through the wrong lens of saying, God foreknew that people would choose him, so he chose them. There's a whole bunch of problems with that. One is, foreknown faith, supposed foreknown faith, would contradict the abundance of scriptural texts that teach the doctrine of total depravity. As I've told you before, and I will say it again, if God looked down the corridors of time to choose those who would choose him apart from sovereign grace, there'd be no one to choose. There'd be no faith to foresee. The doctrine of total depravity makes that abundantly clear. Two, another problem with believing that election is based upon foreseen faith is the clear testimony of the New Testament. The New Testament clearly teaches that faith is a gift from God. For to you it has been granted not only to believe in Christ, Philippians 1.29, but to suffer for his name. It's granted, gifted to a person to believe. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. As I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, if at the end of the day, salvation was based upon the exercise of man's free will, somebody would have a reason to boast. Anybody who exercised the faith that somebody else didn't. And again, as I've told you before, and I say it again, somebody would say, I would never do that. I wouldn't want to do that. But you could do that. And you could argue, I made the decision that somebody else didn't make. So I did one thing better than them, and I am saved because of that one thing. And one other point I'll call your attention to is not only is um, faith a gift from God, remember repentance is a gift from God as well. Acts 11, 18, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. But the one other thing I want to call your attention to is that if election were based upon foreseen faith, salvation would not be by grace alone. And I'd have no problem throwing out sola gratia if the scripture didn't teach it, but the scripture does teach it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 being one of the examples. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, clearly showing that those who received him and believed on his name were those who were born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvations of sovereign grace, not by foreseen faith. God gives the gift of faith to his elect. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. We'll read a little bit more of the context in a moment, but I'm just going to read these verses because they are ones that are often used to argue against the doctrines of grace. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the opposing argument would go something like this. The scripture clearly teaches that God wants all people to be saved. And if God wants all people to be saved, then election that excludes man's free choice cannot be true. 
So that would be the argument if it's well stated. I think that's how it would be communicated. Okay, the problems with this objection begin right here. First, you have to ask this. Who are the all men that are referred to here based upon the context? I'm going to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And I'm going to tell you right on the front end what I think. I think here you see that all men refers to all men without distinction, as opposed to all people on the planet at all times without exception. All kinds of people. You can make the decision for yourself. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul tells Timothy, Therefore I exhort, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, inter intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. There's that all men language again. Watch what he says now in verse 2. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now, maybe for whatever reason, in that context where Timothy was serving as an apostolic delegate, a kind of pastor on site there, maybe for whatever reason the people didn't want to pray or weren't praying for the rulers, people in positions of power. And the Lord says through Paul to Timothy that prayers, supplications, intercessions are to be made in giving of thanks for all men. And then he says, for kings and all who are in authority... So I think the all men that we see here referred to in verse 1, I think it's the same kind of all men that's referred to a little bit later on in verse 4. All kinds of men. You pray for kings. You pray for those who are in positions of authority. Pray for all kinds of people. So that would be my first point. The second point would be, verses 3 and 4 provide an argument for why the church should be praying for all kinds of people. And the argument would essentially be something like this. Pray for all kinds of people, even kings, even those who are in authority, because God desires to save all kinds of people. It just fits in the context. What's the context? The context is instructing Timothy to instruct the church as to how they are to pray. That's the context. Pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. That's the context. Why? Because God wants to save all kinds of people. Furthermore, not only does 1 Timothy 2.1 argue for all kinds of men being what's connoted by all men, so does 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. We'll get there in a moment. Paul stated that he was speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, that he was a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I find it interesting, and I'll make this point again when we get to the next verses, that Paul says he speaks the truth in Christ and he's not lying that he's a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, as though that was so radical. And you know if you've walked through Acts 22 and you see Paul share his testimony about how he came to faith in Christ and how the people were listening up until the word that he said that Jesus sent him to the Gentiles. And at that point, they tore their clothes and they didn't want to hear him anymore because it was so radical to think that this message would go to the Gentiles and they could be saved without becoming Jews. So he says in verse 7 that he was a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And he wasn't lying. So he had to give that qualifying statement. Thirdly, if you see the statement, if you look at chapter uh, 1, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, 1 Timothy, and you say when he says there, speaking of God who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, if you see that as all kinds of men, and you're not trying to impress that upon the text. You're not just saying, like, I, I love the doctrines of grace, so I just got to make it kind of fit, even where it doesn't fit. I got to fit square pegs into round holes. That's not what's happening. You look at verse 1 and verse 2, all kinds of men is illustrated there. You look at verse 7, he says, God has appointed me to be a teacher to the Gentiles, and I'm not lying about it. It's there within the context. You're not putting it there. You're taking it from there. That's exegesis. You're taking it out of the text, not eisegesis. You're putting things into the text. But if you do take the view that verse 4 is talking about all kinds of men, then that stated desire fits with God's eternal purposes and decree. It fits right in. We know that God has desired and purposed to save all kinds of people from every tribe, kindred, nation, and tongue, and people from all different socioeconomic positions. Whether they are kings or in authority or whether they're poor, He desires to save all kinds of men. 
Now, there are some who would say, there are some who would say, well, maybe what's happening here, some who would believe the doctrines of grace, but say, I think what we have here is kind of God's preceptive will, his will of disposition, that his stated desire, even as he desires for all children to obey their parents, yet he has not eternally decreed that a universe would exist where children never disobey their parents. I think that's the kind of thing that's happening here, that God desires all people to be saved. It's his will of disposition in accordance with his preceptive will, his precepts, repent and believe. Now, that's possible, and many people say that, but again, I think based upon the context, we're talking about not every person without exception who's on the planet at that time or who has ever lived. I think within the context, it's all kinds of people. Pray for all men. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 2. Kings and rulers in authority. And I'm a preacher to the Gentiles, and I'm not lying to you. Verse 7. So those are two ways of understanding it. I think the former makes the best sense with the context. Then we come, we're still in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, these first five will be a little bit longer, but then we'll move briefly through the remaining texts. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Okay, so the opposing argument would go something like this. This verse clearly teaches that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. So the doctrine of limited atonement and the notion that Jesus only died for his people cannot be true. Now again, what we're doing here is we're sticking, as you notice, we're sticking with the verses um, right within their context. But again, do not forget the plethora of verses that speak to the fact that Christ laid his life down for his sheep. The good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. Christ's high priestly prayer, I pray not for the world. He prays for those that the Father had given him out of the world. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The church is the church that God purchased with the blood of his son. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and the examples could go on. Titus 2, 14, and so on. But even sticking within the very context here, first point I would say, first problem with this view would be something like this. I taught on this when we went through 1 Timothy verse by verse. It does appear that if you just walk through this epistle, that there appears to have been uh, some problem in the church where Timothy was serving there in Ephesus, where they were suffering from a narrow, exclusivist view of the gospel's broad reach. Their exclusivism appears to have been of a Jewish nature, thus leading to at least a reticence, of re, um, a reticence regarding Gentile inclusion. You see that in the way that they loved the law. They were giving heed to Jewish myths, most likely, and endless genealogies. And apparently they had to be exhorted to pray for all people and not just to pray for maybe specific people or Jewish people that they wanted to pray for. Second point would be this, using the same argument I used before, Paul called the church to pray for all kinds of people. And he expounded on that imperative by providing Exhibit A, an example of classes of people. Verse 2, kings and all who are in authority. Third point would be this. We know that God has purposed and willed to save all kinds of people. Verse 4, and I want to remind you, I kind of touched on this already, this was an idea that was radical in that first century context. Think about it. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people only knew a day of atonement that was for the day of Israel. They only knew of sacrifices being applicable to Jewish people or those who came into the covenant community. And it was only applicable for the Israelite community. Therefore, to hear that the gospel was for the world and that Christ's ransom was for all kinds of people was a radical notion. And again, if you need to be reminded of that, just read Acts 22 on your own. Read Acts 22, read from verse 1 to verse 23, and watch the radical reaction from the Jewish people when Paul says that God, that Christ had called him to go to the Gentiles. It's radical. They just didn't want to hear that. They hear a whole bunch of other things, but when he said that, it was like enough is enough. Now, fourthly, kind of walking into this text, verses 5 through 7, Paul's statement, this could be easily overlooked. Paul's statement, 
For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, is, I would argue, a great reminder that Jesus' mediatorial work is greater than that of Moses. See, Moses was a mediator of the Old Covenant. He was a mediator between God and the nation of Israel. Jesus' mediatorial role is greater. And maybe the people, because they loved the law, but they were using it wrongly. When you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, maybe they had a little bit of too of a high regard for Moses. And here, Paul is saying to Timothy, there's one mediator, only one, between God and men, all kinds of men. And then you have to ask the question, is Jesus the mediator for all people everywhere without exception? Or is he the mediator of his people? Is Jesus making intercession for all people? Or is Jesus making intercession for his people? According to Romans chapter 8, it's his people. He is the mediator, the intercessor for his people. He didn't tell Judas, Satan has asked to enter you, but I've prayed for you. But he told Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. That's one aspect of Jesus' mediatorial work. So again, he's the mediator of all men, but does that mean he's the mediator of all men without exception? Or that he's the mediator of all kinds of people without distinction, regardless of their race, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their ethnicity, better stated, and so on. And fifthly, I would say this. In the following verse, the Apostle Paul um, provides one more reason to justify praying for all kinds of men when he writes about his being an appointed uh, as a teacher of the Gentiles. Again, remember the context. He's trying to exhort them to pray for all kinds of people. Pray for all kinds of people. So 1 Timothy 2.7, he speaks of himself as an apostle to the Gentiles, and he precedes that with a bit of information that's a parenthetical thought, it seems like that, stating that he was not lying, as though it would be hard for the people to believe that he was an apostle to the Gentiles. So for those reasons, I don't think 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 through 7, argue against the doctrines of grace. Let's go to some other texts briefly. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, or as some older manuscripts say, toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In my opinion, outside of John 3.16 and outside of Matthew 23.37, this is the most popularly used verse to argue against the doctrines of grace. Just my opinion by way of experience doesn't mean that it is. I'm just telling you my opinion. And the argument usually goes something like this. The argument usually says, God clearly wants all people to come to repentance, not just the elect. Now, if you're talking about God's prescriptive will, right, his, his will of disposition where he's calling all people everywhere to repent, I'm in perfect agreement with you. But within the context, I don't think that's what's being spoken about here. The problems with that view that I, just, um, that I just told you, that opposing argument view, would be, simply put, if you look at the verse, who is the us referring to? Peter says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. Or some manuscripts say, towards you. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How would you best define who the any are? By looking at the words right before the any. God is patient. He is long-suffering towards you. Then you have to ask the question, who is the you? Who is the us? You go back to 1 Peter or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It's those who have received like precious faith. You go to verse 10. It's the same people that he's saying, to whom he's saying, Make your calling and election sure. It's the elect. They're the beloved. Not only beloved by Peter, but beloved by God. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 17. 
So again, to say that this verse is speaking about God's sovereign desire to bring all people to himself, and the only reason why he can is because there's one thing stronger than God's sovereign will, and that's the free will of man, it doesn't hold up within the context. It's basically saying, within the context, that is a passage about waiting for the return of the Lord, and how God is not slack concerning the return of his son, but he actually has a reason why the return of his son hasn't happened yet, because he's saving all of his elect. He's not willing that any of them should perish, right? All that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. They're held in His hand, and not one of them will perish. Briefly, Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now, the opposing argument often goes something like this. Here we see that Jesus tasted death for everyone, which means that his atonement was not limited and that his work of redemption was not particular in focus. Now, I'd briefly say this. If you were to to say, well, I think that could speak of Jesus tasting death for everyone in the sense that every human being knows that the eternal Son of God actually knows what it's like to die. And so there's no human being on the planet who's going to experience death that can say, God doesn't know what it's like to experience it because the Son of God knows what it's like. That's different than the argument that I'm presenting to you on the other side. But again, you want to look at the context. And I'll say this briefly, so we'll just move on to the closing ones and get to our Q&A time. The surrounding context, I think, helps us understand who the everyone is, ultimately. In Hebrews chapter 2, if you just were to jot down some verses and you could look at it, uh, look at them, Jesus tasted death to bring many sons to glory, Hebrews 2.10. It's right there in the context. They are those who are being sanctified, verse 11. They are his brethren, verse 11, and again referenced in verse 12. They are children that God has given to him, Hebrews chapter 2, second half of verse 13. Same language of children is used at the beginning of verse 14. They are those who are released from the bondage of the fear of death, verse 15. And they are brethren, verse 17. These are not descriptions of unbelievers. Therefore, not only in light of the many verses that speak to the particularity of Jesus' redemptive worth, work, Here, everyone, at least in light of the immediate context, should be understood as everyone that God has given to him, not the entire human race, though we know that Jesus did die to redeem people out of every tribe, kindred, nation, and tongue. And I do think every human being should marvel. Every single human being should marvel. Everyone, without exception, should marvel that the Son of God tasted death. I think every human being. Saved and unsaved, believing and unbelieving, should marvel that the Son of God took on flesh and actually knows what it's like to die. Actually knows what it's like to bleed and suffer, to struggle to breathe, and so on. In that sense, I think every human being should marvel that he tasted death. And every human being could say, wow, God actually knows in the person of his Son what it's like to die. And he died bearing the weight and the wrath of the sin that we His people deserve. All right, Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, um, often used as an argument against perseverance of the saints. Um, That I would just call your attention to briefly. If you read those verses, um, I'll, I'll read them to you. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, or have fallen away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. Now the argument would simply be this. People would say, this verse clearly teaches that a person can lose their salvation, um, that a person can lose their salvation, and that Jesus... Um, died for such individuals, but then they end up losing their salvation because they did not persevere. Now, the problem with that view is very simply answered if you go to verse 9. All you have to do is read Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, and the answer is right there. 
Hebrews 6, 9 shows that the statements in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, are not referring to believers. The writer of Hebrews says very clearly, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. The implication is clear. I'm not talking about you guys. I'm talking about what it looks like when apostates leave the fold. They are the 1 John 2.19 people who were never really of us, though they were with us. I'm not talking about you guys, the beloved. You guys endure till the end. You guys are not these people. This description does not accompany true salvation. And then there's one more, but I will, for the purposes of time, I will save that for... No, you know what? One more. You guys good for one more? Yeah. All right, cool. Because I don't want to leave that one hanging. It's like, why did he leave that one hanging? First yeah. John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we're focusing in on verse 2. John writes, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, or wrath-appeasing offering, for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. The opposing argument would be, this verse clearly, because it's always clearly, <laughs> this verse clearly teaches that Jesus was the wrath-appeasing offering for every person in the world without exception. Okay. Now, the problems with this view are, I think, uh, many. First thing would be, if you go that route, you could well argue that you prove too much. Because if Jesus is the wrath-appeasing offering for every single person, you've now created a category of people who will suffer eternity, eternal punishment, even though their sins were paid for by a wrath-appeasing offering. Biblically, everyone who is going to spend forever in the lake of fire will have to account for their own sins. But the wrath-appeasing offering, the ransom, the redemptive work of Christ is applied to his people, the sheep for whom he laid down his life, and so on. More to argue about that, or more to say with regards to that argument in a moment. I think this is another one of those occasions where we see the word world used, and as we considered in the teaching of limited atonement, there are so many occasions where the world, word world is used, and you know it's not referring to every single person who exists on the planet. And here are some reasons within the context to believe that John's not referring to the whole world. That he's not referring to every single person on the planet. First, I would say this. I think you have good reason to think that because John is writing, and John was an apostle to the Jews. You see that in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. In Galatians 2, 7, Peter is identified as an apostle to the circumcision, but you read Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, and you see that also included James, John, and Peter. In other words, just as Paul was specifically designated or primarily designated to be an apostle to the Gentiles, James, John, and Peter were primarily designated to be apostles to Jewish people. So then when you read what John is saying here, through that lens, it could make sense for him to say he is not only the propitiation for our sins, Jewish people, Jewish believers, but he is the propitiation for those of the whole world, believers scattered across the globe. And you have another reason to think that's what's going on here because in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, John writes, Brethren, I write, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. Which may speak to the implication that these um, hearers were already familiar. They were among the first hearers of biblical truth and Jewish believers. Maybe one of the best arguments to see this, to help see what's going on here, is found in reading the parallel um, language that's used in John 11.52. In John 11.52, when John recorded how Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation... He went on to write, and I want you to notice the linguistic similarities. Not only, but also. That's the kind of language we have here in 1 John 2.2. He's not only the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. John, same author of the Gospel of John, writes this in John 11.52. That Jesus would die, 
uh, quote, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So not only would he die for the nation, the Jewish people, but he would die for the children of God who were scattered abroad, sheep who were not of the fold of Israel. And again, this is language that fits with John's writing. If you read Revelation, also written by John, you see the saints around the throne saying that they were redeemed with the blood of Christ out of every tribe, kindred, nation, and tongue. So I say that to say these are ways to understand these verses, I would argue, rightly. And I think one of the best practical applications I can give you is understanding how doctrine affects living. If you have misunderstandings of biblical truth upstream, somewhere downstream, your behavior, your prayer life, your life in some way will be affected. If you're walking in some measure of lies, some measure of misunderstanding the greatness of God's grace, at some level downstream, that will affect your Christian life. And I think there's a lot of practical applications to this, but I just want to say, as the people of God, we are to be people of truth. And God's word, I think, beautifully comes together. I don't think Bible verses do this. I think they do this. And I think what we've seen over the past five weeks, and then including this week as well, is how this system that God has revealed in his word showed the depravity of man the sovereignty of His grace in electing us, not according to our willing or running or doing, but according to His mercy. It shows us the particularity of the Son coming to lay down His life for a people, the irresistible grace of His calling, that when He calls us, we come. When it pleased God to reveal His Son in us, we're like Lazarus in the tomb. We are coming out. Nothing is stopping us because He's called us to Himself. And those in whom he begins a good work, he will be faithful to complete it. Nobody's jumping out of his hand because they don't want to. He has them so tightly. And we are to live our lives as Christians with this blessed assurance, glorifying him for his grace, understanding that we're not better than other people, that God has sovereignly set his affection upon us. And we want to pray that this gospel would go to all kinds of people all over the world. And we want to be a part of it. And we have great hope that God is going to continue to save people because ultimately salvation doesn't depend on the will of man, but the grace of God. So therefore we want to do evangelism because we love our God who saved us and we know he has a people scattered abroad and we want to be a part of seeing them come to him. And remember, if we believe lies upstream, they're going to affect us downstream in some way, shape, or form. But if we believe truth doctrinally upstream, then it will affect our lives, our praise, our obedience, and so on. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we Thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the way in which it so beautifully is congruent. And I thank you, Heavenly Father, as we continue to just see the greatness of the grace that has saved us. We praise you for that grace. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that such grace would make us all the more zealous to be those who would proliferate the good news of the gospel of grace. And then, Father, even as we read in Acts 13, 48, we know that when that word goes out, that those who are appointed to eternal life at your appointed time will believe. Father, may you continue to be glorified in our fellowship uh, this night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.